0: You're listening to the Word of Life AG podcast. This is the message from this week's service. If you want to view the full service, including worship, please head to our website at wordoflifeag.org. While there, you can also see what's coming up at the church, or even check out some next steps. All right, let's dive into this week's message. Uh, good morning. Good morning. It's great to see everybody. So glad that you're able to be a part of service this weekend. Um, I had a very interesting conversation with a friend of mine this week. Um, this friend of mine is a veterinarian. And he started telling me about something that never even crossed my mind. But he said that this time of year, specifically in this kind of part of the country, it's very common for um, dogs to get a fever. And so his clinic is constantly filled with these dogs that have got, a, you know, a fever, and people come in all kinds of concern. And the interesting thing, and the reason I'm kind of bringing this up, is the, the conversation with the veterinarian was real interesting. Because he said it's actually a very simple remedy for a dog that's kind of got this high temperature. He said you just go to Walmart, you get ketchup and mustard, because it's the best thing to put on a hot dog. All right, so (laughs) I said this last week um, and I wanted to repeat it um, for everyone here. Um, So over the summer, we typically don't have a lot of small groups that are happening here at the church. They, uh, we have groups that run year-round. We have different kinds of groups that are happening. Over the summer, things oftentimes sort of quiet down. But Megan and I decided that we were going to lead a group this summer. So if you'd like to come and be a part of that, um, head to our website. We've got the address on the screen for you if you're not familiar already. But go ahead, next steps, and then click groups, and you can sign up on there. Um, it's an open invitation. We'd love to see you. We're going to be meeting on the lo- uh, in the lobby on Wednesday nights. So it'd be great if you were able to come and be a part of that. And we're going to talk through the Sunday So we're going to sort of consider together and we're going to have a chance to discuss what we've been talking about on Sunday morning. So hopefully that's uplifting and enriching for everyone here. But this is an open invitation for everybody. And I also wanted to make uh, sure everyone's aware, somewhat of an announcement, more information is going to come from this, um, but I wanted to give everyone um, a heads up as soon as we could, specifically for middle school parents. If you're a middle school parent, can you make some noise? (laughs) I saw a lot of... (laughs) There's was a lot of desperation, but anyway. So, uh, one of the things that happened during the COVID shutdown is that, um, I mean, all ministry at the church stopped for a period of time, and then as we were able to reopen, we reopened as we were able to. Um, As part of our reopening, um, we went through a a youth pastor transition. So, Pastor Jeremiah, a lot of you will know him, great guy. He was here for 10 years. He moved on to another area of ministry, um, and it took a while for us to appoint Pastor Annie, who BTW is killing it. Um, But... This is a statement of fact, Uh, and so we've now at the point where we're able to start bringing back the middle school service that was happening on Sunday mornings. So if you were a part of the church for a longer period of time, you'll remember that um, while main service was happening here for us big people, the middle school students were over Elizabeth Street at a building that we mostly use for our youth services. They were meeting um, while we were having main service, and so we are bringing that back, myself, along with Megan and the elders, we're confident this is the best way to minister to our middle school students is to create a distinct space for them to go and be ministered to. It also means that Wednesday nights is going to go back to being um, just for our high school students. So there's a lot of wins that are a part of this and we're really excited about it. So a little information, September 3rd. We're going to be repeating this, and you'll get more info. But starting September 3rd, we're going to be having our middle school service over at the Elizabeth Street building. So that means that for all the middle school parents, um, we'll check in. Kids ministry is not going to be affected at all. So you're checking uh, kids, elementary school kids, as normal. Middle school students will come into service. They'll be with their families for a time of worship together. And then once we sort of come out of a time of worship, we'll dismiss the middle school students. They'll go to the lobby. They'll check in. They'll then go over with the youth leaders down to the Elizabeth. Street building, they will have an incredible time, and then when we're done over here being boring and grown up, you'll go down there, pick them up, and they will have had the best time and they'll know how incredible Jesus is. Sound like a plan? All right. So that is all coming. But for today, we are kicking off a new series. This is something that we've been um, thinking about and praying about and considering and really kind of mulling through and discussing through for about six weeks now. So this was a longer period of time for us to sort of have this idea of a, a series that's coming up. So there's so much um, that could be shared and that um, hopefully will come out over the next nine weeks. But we're going to be looking at this series that we've called Set Apart. And the whole idea about being set apart is that we are to be distinct as believers and as followers of Jesus. We're to be different. We're to stand out, hopefully for the right reasons. But there's a common phrase that um, I, is not from the Bible, but it's based in biblical truth. And the phrase that you may have heard before is that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. And that phrase is is not directly lifted from the Bible, but there's a number of passages that kind of help build this worldview that we have to be in the world, but not of the world. And obvious passages from uh, John 17, this is Jesus talking. I have given them your word. This is Jesus praying to the Father. And the world hates them, talking about his followers, because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. So this begs a question from us, is that how do we, how do you and I live and interact with the world around us? How do we live? How do we exist? How do we conduct ourselves? How do we go about our day-to-day life while being distinct and being set apart? And we're going to try and uh, consider that question. We're going to try and answer that this summer, and we're going to do it through the lens of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So in Galatians 5, there's a list of nine qualities that show the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You may have heard these many times before. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And today we're going to be talking about being set apart and the idea of love as a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Last weekend, um, every Sunday uh, at 9 o'clock, everyone that's part of our volunteer team, everyone that's um, serving in some capacity here at the church is invited to become a part of um, our all-team meeting, otherwise known as ATM, and it's more valuable than cash. (laughs) Megan told me that wasn't funny, and based on your reaction, it turns out she's right, but... We have an all-team meeting for all the volunteers that are here um, at nine o'clock on Sunday morning. And so uh, we, a number of things, we'll get a time, we'll pray together, oftentimes we just spend time in worship. Sometimes there'll be um, a level of creativity around what one of the leaders and pastors will share. And last week, Megan spoke and she shared this idea of love. And one of the things that stuck with me is that she talked about God's love for us And one of the points that she made is that we hear this so much. It's such a basic part of the Christian message that when we hear about God's love, it's easy to just roll our eyes and say, I've heard this before. You know, we hear it so much. Yeah, okay, God loves me. Yeah, I know. Heard that bazillion times before. It's easy to be dismissive. And yet the love of God has changed the world. The love of God has changed millions and millions of lives of people all around the world. The love of God has changed and defined human history. The love of God, we may have heard it many, many times before. That doesn't mean it's something that we should casually dismiss. It doesn't mean that it's something that we shouldn't give our minds and our attention and our focus to today. So I'm grateful that Megan made that point last week. Because I want to kind of reemphasize that for the whole church for us today. Is to consider this idea of love. That we don't just kind of roll our eyes and think, okay, love, okay, yeah, church, love, Jesus loves me, okay, okay, and just be dismissive, but let's take this personally today. I believe there's something here for us today that is hopefully a challenge, hopefully an encouragement, and will give us an idea about how do we live distinct and set apart, and something about the love that the Holy Spirit is working and building up in our lives is going to set us apart and make us distinct for the right reasons. So the fruit of the Spirit, as I mentioned earlier, that list of nine qualities or expressions or descriptions that I read out, it's the Holy Spirit producing that fruit in our lives. And like all Bible verses, um, it wasn't written as a standalone list. This fruit of the Holy Spirit that I just read a moment ago, when it was originally written, it wasn't just as a standalone list, but it was part of a much larger conversation and a larger argument, just like every other part of the Bible. And where we keep that list from is from the book of Galatians. And the book of Galatians was one of the earliest books written in the New Testament. Um, It's recognized as a circular letter that was written by Paul the Apostle to a group of churches. Now, it appears that Paul would send a messenger, and the messenger would read the letter to the church, the letter that he'd written. And then the messenger and the team traveling with the letter would go to the next city with the church, read the letter again, and then go on to the next city. Hence, being a circular letter, it was to be circulated around a group of churches. The letter which we have as the book of Galatians, it's largely addressing a problem for the believers that you and I don't think about very much, and it isn't a concern for most Western churches, and has never been a big concern for any of the churches I've ever belonged to. But this is the problem that is largely being addressed in the book of Galatians. For the first hundred years or so of the church's existence, the first hundred years after the resurrection of Jesus, the church was intrinsically a Jewish movement. Jesus was Jewish, and he largely taught and ministered in Judea and to Jewish people. When Jesus ministered to people who weren't Jewish, the gospel readers typically, uh, the gospel writers typically make a note of it because it stands out as being something unusual. Jesus was dedicated in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem as a baby. Jesus knew the Jewish scriptures better than anyone, and he taught that he was the fulfillment of all that God had promised humanity within what we call the Old Testament. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah that God's people were patiently waiting for. And when the priests and religious leaders manipulated the Romans to have Jesus crucified, he made the way to establish a new kingdom. He made a way for forgiveness and redemption. He conquered the power of sin and death. He fulfilled all the requirements of the Old Testament, covenant, and he initiated something new. The resurrection of Jesus launched a new movement on the earth. People like Paul were used by God to spur this new movement forward. This new movement, the church, it was deeply and inseparably rooted in Judaism, but it was opening up to people from all kinds of backgrounds. What was seen and understood as a branch or a sect of Judaism is now welcoming in non Jewish people. And these Gentiles, as they're known, are finding a place in God's kingdom because the effects of the cross were not just for the Jews, but for all the people of the earth. Now, this sounds wonderful, but it was messy. The Jewish scriptures lay out a strict way to live and a specific way to conduct ourselves. And there are three big points of observance that we see throughout the New Testament. Specifically, we see the need to observe the Sabbath every single Saturday, the following the strict kosher diet and making sure that all the uh, Jewish males were circumcised. Now, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, they had no concern with any of these things. They didn't care about having a day off every Saturday. They weren't worried about what food was or was not approved according to an ancient document from another foreign country. They certainly weren't interested in circumcision. When we start to see both Gentile and Jewish people come together because of their faith in Jesus, we can see why it got explosive. This was a Jewish movement, and yet the Gentile converts didn't care about Jewish laws or Jewish traditions. They were told that Jesus fulfilled the law, that he had accomplished the old covenant. So why are the Jewish people still living like the old covenant is enforceable when Jesus said he's starting something new? These kind of debates, they would settle down as the message of Jesus spread throughout the world and more and more Gentile believers responded to the message of Jesus. And today it's typically something we don't even think about, but for Paul and the other apostles and the earliest church leaders, this was the hot topic of the day. How were the Jewish Christians, who believed that Jesus was their promised Messiah, who fulfilled the old covenant established with Moses, how were they going to coexist with Gentile believers who had minimal understanding of the history of God's promises, the scriptures, they had no regard for Jewish tradition, and yet they wanted equal status as followers of Jesus? How were these two groups going to coexist as a unified church? Not only was it messy, it was also persistently messy. One of the remedies Paul provides is a letter to be read at a number of churches in the province of Galatia to help bring some uh, perspective, so that all the members of the church could enjoy their newfound freedom in Jesus. We have this letter in our New Testament, and we call it the Letter to the Galatians. Galatians is not a very long book. If you have a chance to read it this week, I'm sure it'll be an encouragement and a challenge. But I'd certainly suggest you take a few minutes and read chapter five. It's a uh, part of a larger argument, but within chapter 5 and with some of the background I just shared with you, it'll definitely be a few minutes well spent. But in Galatians 5, Paul is concerned with freedom and how the believers, both Jewish and Gentile, are living in the spiritual freedom they've received when they became followers of Jesus. Now, here's a few verses from chapter 5 of Galatians, starting verse 1. So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. If you're trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you have been cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from God's grace. For when we placed our faith in Christ Jesus, there is no benefit in being circumcised or being uncircumcised. What is important is faith expressing itself in love. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. Don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 5.16, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you are not free to carry out your good intentions. And verse 19 When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. But... The Holy Spirit inspires something different. Doing whatever you want, doing what feels good, living in the moment, living each day like it's your last, being led by your feelings, going with the crowd, it leads to places you and I don't want to go. And we've all seen it. We've all seen the problems of sin that are completely self evident. People often want to argue over what's permissible and not technically a sin, and just how close can we get before it's too far we should just acknowledge that sin devastates people's lives. There's not a single person here who hasn't seen the awful consequences of sin in their lives. I would imagine that every single person here has seen major life upheaval just this week in someone's life because of sin. But the Holy Spirit produces something different in our lives, and it's different from obedience to the Old Testament law. The word fruit is interesting here because it paints this picture and invites us to think about this as a fruit or a crop in our life. If we're being led by the Holy Spirit, then what will naturally flow out of our lives is the fruit, just like apples naturally come from an apple tree. The fruit of the Spirit will naturally overflow and naturally be produced from the lives of people who live following the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control there is no law against these things those who belong to christ jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there since we are living by the spirit let us follow the spirit's leading in every part of our lives how do we live set apart simply we value we desire and we prioritize the fruit of the holy spirit We prioritize love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, and there may be many of you, I'm not sure, but you may not believe the Bible, you may not have put your faith or your confidence in your trust in Jesus, and you may be uncertain about why people have any of this uh, faith at all. And even as I rattled off that list a few times now, surely you would have to say in a moment of honesty that these qualities, these attributes, these expressions, these are things that we all value in other people. We would want our friends to have this evident in their lives. We would want people to have these qualities in their life. The people that we surround ourselves with, this is how we would want people to act around us. These are the kind of coworkers we would like to have. It's people that have kindness, people that have joy and people who are patient. These are the kind of qualities that each and every one of us would value, whether we have our faith and our trust in Jesus or not, these are things that each and every one of us would look at in the lives of someone else and say, yes, that's something good. And it is right and it is appropriate as believers that we make a priority and a focus and a desire for, yes, that is what I want in my life. That is what I want to be overflowing from my life is more and more patience and kindness and goodness. I want more and more self-control. I want more and more gentleness and love and joy to come from my life. Just as this is the kind of qualities that we would want people around us to show. There's a wonderful part of this uh, passage, verse 25. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. And that phrase, that in every part of our lives, has stuck with me this week. The overflow of the Holy Spirit, including love that we're going to be looking at today, it's not just reserved for certain occasions, it's each and every day, it's every place you go, it's every group of people you're with. The love that Paul is writing about, that the Holy Spirit is developing in our lives, it's shown and it's evident, it's seen and it's observable in every area of our lives. Now the world around us, they have a definition and an expectation of love. But what does the Bible say and how does the Bible define the word love and For a start, this is a worthwhile study if you've got a spare hour this week, but there are four words in New Testament Greek for the English word love. So um, there are four words in Greek that we all translate into the English for the word love. There's romantic love, there's familial love, there's even brotherly love, and then there's the word that we've been looking at in Galatians, and it's the Greek word um, agape or agape, depending on whether you're from Britain or America. I'll let you decide which is which. But this word agape, it doesn't describe a relationship per se. We translate it into English for the word love, but it doesn't describe a relationship. Rather, it describes a, a disposition. It describes almost like a personality type. Um, it describes you know, the way that someone, you know, someone's countenance, the way that they carry themselves, that someone is essentially a loving person. And two people came to mind as I was thinking about this. Um, I thought about Pastor Randy and Pastor Mike. As two people, and I normally say mean and horrible things about Mike Chiz, but I'm gonna say something nice today. (laughs) But these are two individuals that I, I really think they go through life just with a loving disposition. Their love that they have for people is just self-evident. The way that they conduct themselves, the compassion that they have for people, I, I think it's plain to see. One of the things that um, Mike told me that has stuck with me is he told me one day that if um, he gets a spam phone call on his cell phone, he picks it up just in case it's not a spam call, but it's someone that needs help. So on that note, I'd like to give you Pastor Mike's cell phone number. <laughs> but... But that's, uh, that really does sum up this word agape, is this idea of love, is that it's not so much a a relationship between a husband or wife, or even between, uh, you know, friends or between kids. It really does describe just someone with a loving disposition. And I want to sort of look at five ways about how does the Bible describe love? How does the Bible describe love? i got five ways. First thing, how does the Bible describe love? Firstly, love starts with God. Love starts with God. 1 John 4, 7, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Love starts with Him. It starts with God. Something about the love of God, it it changes people. When people encounter the love of God, something about it, it starts something in their lives and it starts to transform who they are. So much so that it genuinely confuses me when people who profess Jesus, they still carry a bitter and grumpy disposition. The whole idea that God is love and that he's changed my heart, and yet I'm still going to be angry and confrontational and bitter and cynical and negative and critical, that whole thing confuses me. God's love changes people, and it changes people for the better. But as we think about this whole idea of love and having a loving disposition and letting that fruit of the spirit just burst out of our lives, it's important for us to remember that love starts with God. Second thing, how does the Bible describe love? Second thing, love recognizes value. Love recognizes value. All the way back in Genesis 1, 27. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We are all made in the image of God. Now, I, uh, I first heard this 20 years ago. We used to do it with British money back then. This is a $20 bill. It's not a fake, it is real. Now, I don't get to decide how much this 20 is worth. The Treasury Department does. I can treat this $20 like it's a $5 bill. It doesn't change that it's worth 20. I could ignore this bill altogether. It doesn't change the value. I can crumble it up, I could cover it in trash. When we used to do it at youth camps, we used to pretend to blow our nose in it, but we're in big church and we're all sensible and grown up now. <laughs> it doesn't matter how you mistreat this bill. It's still worth what the Treasury Department has said and determined that it's worth. It doesn't matter how I treat. It, it doesn't matter my feelings toward it. I don't have the authority to decide how much it's worth. the Treasury Department does. Now, of course, go with the illustration. I could, you know, run it through a shredder. I could set fire to it. But go with the illustration. People go through life. They get beaten up. They get misvalued. They get treated like trash. People treat each other unfairly. People do terrible things to each other. And it's important that each and every one of us as believers, we don't lose sight. That does not and cannot change the value of a person. Because a person is made in the image of God. And it is vital that you and I remember this. The value of a human being is not established by you or me or anyone else. It is established by God on high. He has made us in His his image. Each and every person bears the image of the Almighty. And that value is something that as believers, as people that are going through life, being distinct, being separate, being set apart, and we are showing the fruit of love in our lives that we are reminding people and we are letting people know and we are esteeming the value that they have, not because of how life has treated them, but because they are made in the image of the Almighty. No one deserves to be treated like trash. No one deserves to be treated as unworthy when all of us are made in the image of God. This is why Jesus showed love and compassion to both the poor and impoverished prostitutes, as well as the wealthy, corrupt tax collectors. This is why the pro-life message is a message of love. Each and every unborn baby is being knit together in their mother's womb, and they are made in the image of God. Every person... Every person, no matter how desperate they are, is made in the image of God. Every homeless person, every drug addict, every sex worker is made in the image of God. Every person in prison, every desperate and confused teenager, every college kid driven by fear and anger, every parent struggling to make it through another day, every senior citizen, every person with special needs, every person who is terminally ill, every Republican and every Democrat, Every person, regardless of socioeconomic status or race, whether you're from a Western nation or Africa or Asia or South America or anywhere else, everyone is made in the image of God. And in our pursuit of love, we will treat people with their true value in mind. Whether people act like they are made in the image of God or not, we will treat people like they have supreme value because they are precious to God. That's shown here in 1 John chapter uh, verse 9. God showed how much he loved us, loved us, you, me, your neighbors, people you know, people you don't know, people you hate, people you love, people you care about, people you've never met, people you're never going to meet. He loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. How does the Bible discover number three? Third thing is love is the motive. Love is the motive. We read this already that God is love. This is him encapsulated. This is a description of who he is. This is his motivation. This is his drive. This is his purpose. This is his care and his concern. God is love. John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. His motive is love. Love for you, love for me. And why does God act this way? Simply put, he is motivated and consumed by love. This motivation is something that we should all take on board. Why do we do anything? Why do we act the way that we are? Why are we emulating God? Well, I hope it's because the fruit of the spirit is coming out of our lives and is being worked out of our lives so that we have a love for God and a love for people. Galatians 5.25, I'll read it again. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. The Holy Spirit is producing fruit in our lives, including love for others. It's not something we can compartmentalize or selectively express, but it's in every part of our lives, in every room you walk into, with each and every person you interact with, whether at home or work, whatever responsibilities we're fulfilling, whether we're relaxing or we're busy, no matter what, no matter who we're with, Now, this is a much bigger challenge than we may want to admit. It means standing out. It means being set apart. But I trust that it's worth it, and I trust that it's the right thing to do. Fourth thing, how does the Bible describe love? Number four, love is the desired outcome. Love is the desired outcome. The hope in all of this is that as we love each other as a community of faith, we're a community of love, And that the love that we've received from God and we're likewise expressing to the world around us, it will provoke a response of love from other people. The desired outcome from us showing love to others is that they respond and likewise start embracing love and showing love to others. And we've read a lot from Paul's writing today, and it's worth remembering that Paul was so self-righteous and filled with anger that he oversaw and approved the stoning of Stephen. He would throw innocent people in jail, and he sought permission from the authorities to go and oppress people who declared the name of Jesus. But then Paul had his encounter on the road to Damascus. He met Jesus, had his life changed, a total transformation in his heart, and he is the one, God chose to write, um, he is the one that God chose to write about his love for us. Paul, someone who was essentially a terrorist, on his way to go and kill and imprison people for their faith. He's the one that God stopped in his tracks and said, you are the one that is going to write to people and tell them how much I love them. He's the one. He's going to be the messenger to the people that don't know me and don't know my promises. And I am 100% confident there is not a single person in this room that we would have looked at the pre-conversion Paul and said, you're the perfect person to go and be God's mouthpiece. There is not a single one of us. It reminds me of um, a story when we lived in New York City. There was a, a guy who came to our church. I swear on my life this is a true story. A guy came to church, and uh, he was a little rough around the edges. Um, his name was Anthony. I'm not 100% sure he was Italian, but he wore a Yankees jersey to church. You know what I'm saying? And so Anthony, he, he wasn't like a big-time criminal or crook or anything like that, but he had you know, a few brushes with the law. And one day he comes up, and he tells me and my buddy, real proud of himself, he's like, hey, you know what? I had an altercation of work. He had a you know, big Brooklyn accent, which I'm not going to imitate. But he's like, I had an altercation of work this week. He's like, you know what? It got to the point where it started to get physical. Some pushing and shoving started to happen. And I ended up with a guy up against the wall like this. And I was like, you know what, what I said? I'm like, what are you saying next? He said, lucky for you, I just started going to church. <laughs> love is the desired outcome. <laughs> How does the Bible describe love? Number five. Love brings us back to God. Love brings us back to God. 1 John 4, 11, Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and His love is brought to full expression in us. His love, God's love, is brought to full expression in us. As we are expressing love, God's love is fully expressed. When we show love to others, God's love is seen. Seeing the good and noble in the world, it points us back to God. The message of Jesus, it only makes sense when we first believe and agree that we're all broken and faulty, that each of us has fallen short and we have pushed away God. And in a world where there's so much hurt, pain, and injustice, there's also goodness and expressions of love. I believe that these moments of goodness and love, it brings us back to God. We're a church. We want the people of Baldwinsville to know that they are loved and cared for and valued by word of life. We want people to know that we don't have an ulterior motive. Our motive is a genuine love and concern for our neighbors. Hopefully, if our love for people is overflowing from the lives of believers, then hopefully it spreads. I'm praying that this love is contagious and multiplies and spreads to every home and every workplace and every school. And that though all these people, they encounter pure love, and by encountering pure love, they embrace the Savior of the universe. They embrace the one and they find love in the one whose love takes an eternity to fully realize. It's been said so often that the country and the culture is becoming more and more divided. It's been said that there's a growing lack of trust for various institutions. The frustrations and anger that seem to underpin everything in every moment is always present. And yet the followers of Jesus have a message of love. It's important to remember these words from Jesus from Matthew 20, but among you it will be different in a world that's frustrated and angry. No matter how easy it is to get caught up in it and I know it's easy to get caught up in it among you it will be different to express love to the world, to stand out for the right reasons, to be set apart, to be different and distinct. Among you it will be different. And how do we show love in a way that's different from the world around us? How do we Show love. And how does love set us apart? Number one, we love and we disagree. Love and disagree. The world doesn't do this. The world doesn't, right now, love and disagree. As um, I've mentioned, loads of times in the past few months, I've really been touched and moved by um, the Jesus Revolution movie. It's just a movie, and I don't want to make an idol out of it, but um, the story is a true story, and, uh, you know, sort of the book that I read about a year ago just really touched me, and the movie just kind of brought it to life as kind of the visual representation of the late 60s and early 70s when God moved in an unprecedented way across the country. It's incredible, and it's deeply moving. Um, We watched it with the twins last night, This is another true story that you're going to think I'm lying about. I promise it's true. But to get the twins ready to watch it, um, we had to explain that these hippies were doing drugs, and drugs are bad kids. And so we had to kind of explain that. And so then Moses very confidently said, oh, I've done drugs before. And so I was like, "I," But you've you've taken medicine that we've gotten from a doctor. That's not I've done drugs before. And I was like, no, no, no. It came from Kenny drugs. It was drugs. I've done drugs before. I was like, dude, you just... If he's going around kids ministry right now saying, I've done drugs, I should have warned Pastor Lisa, that was a thing. But anyway, that, that really did happen. But if you know the movie or you know the story at all of, of this move and started in um, Southern California where a pastor by the name of Chuck Smith under immense pressure from his church that was very traditional, very rigid, that he started welcoming in these hippies. And the hippies would come in, and they didn't come in cleaned up. They came in as they were. They came in stoned, and they came in addicted, and they came in homeless, and they came in barefoot. They came in messy. They came in with questions. They had no idea how to conduct themselves in a church service. And he welcomed them on in. And it's a great story, and the story moves me so much. Megan makes fun of me because I normally cry when I watch it. But it, it moves me so much because I identify with Chuck Smith. Because this idea of, you know, you're gonna pastor a church and it's all nice and it's neat and everyone knows how to behave and they know where to sit and they know when you stand up and everyone knows what they're doing. Even today we do communion. Like we've done communion before so we know how this goes. It's nice, neat, you know, it's, it's nice to do that. It's easy. But then you miss out on the hippies. And Chuck Smith opened up the doors of his church. Oh my gosh, every time... He opened up the doors of his church and he changed a generation. (laughs) The reason I bring this up today is not just that I bring it up every week, but the first barrier to come down for this guy, the first barrier to come down was his willingness to open up his home and his church to people he disagreed with. To the best of my knowledge, up until his death in 2013, Chuck Smith never changed his belief on drugs and promiscuity, but he loved those kids. Despite the disagreements, despite not agreeing with a lot of the choices they were making, not agreeing with a lot of the pressure they were feeling and they were succumbing to, he overcame that and said, I'm gonna love you anyway. And God did amazing things. In the world around us, there's a demand for loyalty and allegiance, and it's often preloaded with the requirement to hate those you disagree with. This idea of I love you even though I disagree with you, it's becoming more and more unusual in the world that we're living in, but as believers in Jesus, that's something we need to hold dear, we need to grab onto, and we cannot let go of that. Second thing, how does love set us apart? Secondly, we love and we forgive. We love and we forgive. Forgiveness, it breaks the destructive cycle. Forgiveness, as Jesus taught about it, it was often used, and he often used the illustration of money to help us get a hold of what it means to forgive and what forgiveness really looks like and what it means. And this idea of that if if someone owes you a financial debt and you forgive the debt, what it means is you incur the cost. You incur the cost. You take the cost. If you forgive someone for an emotional wrongdoing they've done to you, you incur the cost of that emotional wrongdoing. If you forgive someone of something terrible they've done for you, you incur the cost of not getting justice, but you're free. Do you know how unusual this is becoming? This idea of I'm going to love you and I'm going to forgive you. I'm not going to hold this need for an apology over your head. I'm just going to absorb the cost. We're just going to wipe the slate clean. Forgiveness is at the center of the gospel. Forgiveness is, you know, God's forgiveness for humanity. It's at the absolute center of our message. And yet forgiveness seems to be more and more elusive in the world. Grudges, revenge, cancel culture, it all flies in the face of forgiveness, but we have all been forgiven and we will forgive. Third thing, how does love set us apart? We love and require nothing. We love and require nothing. I said today that love will hopefully be responded to with multiplying love and people will reciprocate that love to others and people will hopefully embrace love and then find hope in Jesus because they've seen love from people but it's not a condition. It's not a requirement. We love without any requirement or demand. This is role model from Jesus. I thought of three examples and maybe if I thought about it longer I could come up with more but there was a time when Jesus healed 10 lepers and only one of them went back and thanked him. It didn't mean he didn't heal the other nine. Jesus fed 5,000 and then he started teaching on some things that made them really uncomfortable. And so they all left, but he still fed 5,000 people. He spent three years with Judas. And we know how that story ended. (laughs) Jesus, he gave us a role model and he showcased for us what it means to love people with no expectation of getting anything back. He healed nine lepers that didn't even take the time to thank him. He fed 5,000 people that left him as soon as he started saying some crazy stuff. He spent three years with somebody that would turn him over to the authorities for 30 pieces of silver. If love is expressed through good deeds, helping and being kind, what if it's not reciprocated? What if it's scorned and rejected? Then... My friends, we persist. We continue to show the love of God. We continue letting that fruit of the Holy Spirit just flow out of our lives. How does love set us apart? Firstly, we love and disagree. Secondly, we love and forgive. And thirdly, we love and require nothing. And all of this is wrapped up in the gospel message, Romans 5.8, my favorite verse in the Bible. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Jesus, we talk about loving while we disagree. Jesus said, love your enemies. And then his enemies conspired to put him on a cross. While he was being nailed to the cross, it was Jesus that said, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. We talk about forgiveness. Who knows better than him? When we talk about requiring nothing, we remember what it says in Ephesians 2 that this message of Jesus, this gospel message, this good news, this life-changing gospel, you did nothing. There's nothing you can boast about. He did it all. We bring nothing to the table. Absolutely nothing. So as we talk about love and disagreements, Jesus is the greatest example there is. As we talk about love and forgiveness, Jesus is the greatest example there is. Let's talk about love and requiring nothing. Nobody did it like Jesus. Back in March, I spoke a series of messages specifically with our generation in mind, and I kind of continued that last week. But this is from week two of that series that I want to repeat with us today. What I shared then, and I still believe is true today, is that this generation, the generation that you and I are a part of, is more tired, exhausted, stressed, weighed down, anxious, confused, aimless, and addicted, more so than any generation that has gone before us. The church is supposed to be a lighthouse, but we're a part of a generation that aren't worried about their boat crashing into the rocks. The church is supposed to be a hospital, but people don't realize they're sick. The church is supposed to be the light of the world, but for many, they believe hope and, they believe hope and peace is found in the darkness. The church is supposed to be a place of refuge, but we're watching a generation that is looking to the same world that has beaten them up for love and acceptance. The church is supposed to declare the good news of Jesus, but the world isn't listening. And this, I believe, is the tension that the modern day church is called to navigate. How do we rescue people that don't agree they need rescuing? How do we love people who believe we hate them? How do we have a voice around ethics and morality when the world is telling us to shut up How do we help people undo the lies of the world when the lies are being screamed from all corners of culture? How do we proclaim that we have a life-changing message to a world that doesn't trust us? How do we disciple people so that they're strong enough to swim against the tide of culture? How do we preach a message of forgiveness and grace to a community that doesn't think they've done anything wrong? How do we say love your neighbor when people hate each other if they voted differently from them? The easy answer, is to be a church that loves people. But I'm sure everyone understands it can be a lot more complicated putting it into practice. But these words from Jesus are just as true today as they have ever been. From Matthew 5, you have heard that the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, here's a different way. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as two true children of your Father in heaven. For He gives His sunlight both to the evil and the good, and He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're only kind to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. If you love only those who vote like you, what reward is there for that? If you love only those who agree with you, what reward is there for that? If you love only those who get angry at the same things you get angry at, what reward is there for that? If you love only those who watch the same news outlets that you do what reward is there for that? But to reflect the love of God in the world, we need to love differently. We need to love enemies. We need to love those who lie and persecute. We need to love the unjust, not just our friends or those who agree with us. We need to love people who have different ideas about sexuality and gender identity than you do, who have different attitudes about drugs than you do, who don't trust churches. We need to love people who are harming other people. We need to love the people who you think are destructive to the country. Is this easy and neat and tidy? Absolutely not. It's messy and rough and confusing and complicated. It's difficult and confrontational and uncomfortable. But for two thousand years, I'm oh sorry, two hundred years, the churches in America were largely viewed as the upright voice of morality. The church doesn't have that luxury anymore. The culture no longer trusts the church or gives any authority to the Bible, which means the temptation to focus inward and to only engage with each other and only show love to those who love and agree with us, that temptation has never been greater. The temptation could be that we just need, as a church, we need to scream louder than the culture. And if we scream louder than the culture, then we will get the message of Jesus across. Another temptation is we actually just need to get completely silent and just become this inward-focused group. We need just become inward focused, it's just by us, it's by, you know, you, me, and us three, that's it. We just need to stay small. We need to be suppressed and quiet. We need to be inward focused. Jesus didn't say either of those options. He didn't say we need to yell louder than society. He didn't say we need to yell louder than Fox News. He didn't say we need to loud yell, yell louder than CNN. What Jesus said is you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and that way you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you ought to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect." Is this easy? Is it neat? Are there simple answers to all the difficult questions? No. It's complicated. There's conversations that need to be had. But if we're following Jesus, we're following his example, and we're following his teaching, and he loved, and he loved enemies. He loved people that didn't deserve love. To help us figure out how we're supposed to play all this out, Paul repeats the teaching of Jesus In Galatians 5.14, for the whole law can be summed up in this one command, exactly what Jesus taught. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's easy to say. It's easy to say, love your neighbor as yourself. It's even easy to demand it of other people. It's easy to spot when someone else isn't living up to this standard. But this is an invitation for you and I to be inwardly and reflect and think and consider how we are conducting ourselves and how we like to be treated. And it's telling us, go and do what you would like someone to do to you. How does the Bible describe love? Love starts with God. Love recognizes value. Love is the motive. Love is desired outcome. Love brings us back to God. And how does love set us apart? We love and disagree. We love and forgive. And we love and require nothing. A couple of questions for you. Take a moment, write these down think about it this week, spend some time praying about it, maybe chat it over with someone you trust. But the first thing, is loving people a priority for you? Is loving people a priority for you? Not just those that are easy to love, not just those people that agree with you, not just those people that it's easy to get on the same page with. Is loving people a priority for you? The second thing, if you loved people in the way the Bible describes, how would you be set apart and different? If you were loving people that you disagreed with, if you were loving people and showing forgiveness even though they don't deserve it, if you were loving people and requiring nothing in return, how would that make you set apart in the world that you live in? I'll ask you to stand up. I got a few verses I'm gonna read and then we're gonna go into a time of worship. If you stand with me, Galatians 5:22, But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In this verse from 1 John 4 that we've read a few different ways today, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much He loves us by sending His one and only Son into the world so that we might have eternal life through Him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. Lord, I hope that something from today is an encouragement, a challenge, is strengthening. Lord, is uplifting. Lord, for each and every person here, Lord, as difficult as it may be, as complicated as it may be, Lord, to show love to people that we disagree with and show love to people who hate us and our enemies and all the things that we read about today, Lord, please help us. Lord, we want this to be the fruit of our lives. We want your Holy Spirit to be at work in our hearts and our minds and just, absolutely just bringing about true life change in us and that the fruit that naturally flows out of that would indeed be love and that that would cause us to stand out for the right reasons. Lord, I trust you with all of this. We love you, we worship you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, everyone, let's spend a moment together in worship.